Hello, and welcome to Final Show Films. I'm John, the executive producer here, and I've got a few pre-show notes for you. First, a reminder. All of the content we produce is available on our website at finalshowfilms.com, as well as youtube.com slash sensetaku, sensetaku.podbean.com, twitch.tv slash sensetaku, and on iTunes. We are only able to do the things we do thanks to the kind support of our Patreon donors. We give a special shout-out to our $25 tier supporters, Antitonic and Cat Waterflame. If you'd like to support us that way, be sure to check it out. Secondly, a thank you to the folks over at 411mania.com. They produce articles and content related to wrestling, MMA, movies, music, and gaming. Go check them out. We appreciate their support as well. And lastly, be sure to subscribe, comment, and rate, if possible, wherever you listen to or watch our content. It helps us know what you like, what you don't like, and helps us make more content. Feedback is always appreciated. With all that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, a Critical Role rewatch and uh, what fuck literary discussion podcast. That's the rest of that subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> We're back. Uh, I'm John, executive producer here at Financial Films, and the 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 leader of this discussion. Uh, and with me today is Jack. Hey, everybody, this is Jack. I'm at Alt F4 Gamers on Twitter. Yep, and I'm at John A. Bates on Twitter. And also with us is Jeremy. I'm Jeremy. I'm J. Thomas 411 Mania on Twitter. And today we're talking about Critical Role Episode 22, The Aramente to Pyra. Episode 22 uh, stars Orion Acaba as Tiberius, Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talzin Jaffe as Percy, Ashley Johnson as Pike, Liam O'Brien as Axel Don, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Travis Willingham as Grog, and as always, Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Um, previously on Critical Role, the party had unknowingly broken the laws of Vasselheim and found themselves in a conundrum where they had to choose either go to the Seat of Judgment and be judged for breaking the law, or join the Slayer's Take, who, which is the, the guild of monster hunters whom they had slided in their, in their uh, law-breaking activities. Uh, they agreed to join the guild instead of going to trial, and as such had to were split into two separate parties to hunt down uh, a variety of beasties, which we spent the last four episodes of this talking about. Uh-huh. Um, which was the trial to take. And now everybody has uh, their 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 sort of setups that have been completed. Each group has been returned to one another to do, uh, and everyone survived, which is good. Yeah. So no, everybody I, but the carpet. Everybody but the carpet. After finally reuniting, the Huntsmaster breaks up the happy hugging moment that we have at the beginning of the at the beginning of the episode to remind everyone that they must go through the rites to become full members of the Slayer's Take. She leads them down a long hall to a heavy iron door, which two men use change to raise. Beyond it is a dark stairway that descends into darkness, obviously. As Vanessa steps past them and leads them into the darkness, the stairs... Sorry, that sentence made me think there was more to that sentence. <laughs> As Vanessa steps past them and leads them into the darkness, period, end of the sentence. Next sentence. The stairs end in a large chamber with sand on the floor. Before them is a large ziggurat with four stone obelisks around it. It appears to be hundreds of years old, and Vex notices strange symbols on the stones, an eye with a sip carved into the stone. Vex realizes that this is a symbol of Ayun, a goddess of knowledge. Uh, Vanessa calls out to something called Osisa, 
or someone called Alcisa in this case, who answers with a loud roar. And from the darkness springs the lion-esque body, of a lar- uh, lion-esque body with large bird wings and a human and a female human face, or a gynosphinx. Uh-huh. Uh, a gynosphinx is yep. an ancient creature that has kept watch in this temple for centuries and tells them that they are now part of a group that will help keep the world safe from dark creatures. Um, so, about gynosphinxes, and, well, sphinxes in general, but gynosphinx in particular, um, there is, we, we, for, 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 for transparency's sake, we've tried to record this episode twice now. This is the second time. The last time, we stopped roughly around here as we got into a conversation about gynosphinxes, which is that, um, well, it, what I like in particular about Osisa and about this scene as a whole is it it illustrates something that you can re- that you really can that you can do with fantasy settings um, to sort of have discussions and conversations about you know balances of power in society and and how uh, how uh, how society you know sort of looks at and deals with power in a variety of ways. For instance. In this particular case, we have Osisa, who is a, a, a gynosphinx, running an organization from the shadows. Like, so not not necessarily the face of the organization, but definitely like the shadowy CEO character, mm. which in in more modern settings is always a boring-looking old white dude in a suit in a tower somewhere. Um, which uh, and and because in our in our more modern in our more modern idea of business that's sort of the that's sort of the standard trope of of uh you know who who owns corporations old white men and so moving into a fantasy setting allows you to basically because that's effectively what osisa is in this instance is the 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 shadowy figure pulling the strings behind this organization or this corporation um and you can take that idea of a boring old white man and turn it into a gynosphinx right which is a pretty fair distance away from the origin of the trope mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah. and, and i think that that provides uh, fantasy cities in particular for, for writers and storytellers uh, and, and gamers provides a, a very interesting platform to say, well, but what if shadowy organization was run by Gynosphinx? Um, which, which I appreciate. I, I, don't, I don't remember if there's anything that either one of you wanted to add on to that. Um, well, go ahead, Jeremy. <laughs> well, a uh, couple things. Well, first off, uh, I feel a point of clarification. I don't look at the Slayer's take. I mean, yes, there's, there is, there's sort of two elements to it. There is Vanessa's side of it, which is we like making money. We like making money. We like making money. And then there's Osisa's side, which is she's basically using the, um, uh, letting them do the financial aspects of it. while using it as sort of an arm of her, uh, of almost a religious wing. Um, so I look at it more of a sort of, uh, there isn't a good, when I say good, I mean positively aligned example <laughs> of this that I can think of. Yeah, because when um, the church goes into business, usually corruption starts Usually running, bad things, things start happen. to happen, yeah. So she's um, like, it's like her version of the Knights Templar, sort of yes, uh, uh, with 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 far less 
New yeah. realism with, with, with far with far less New World Order conspiracy yes. theories about it. New World Order conspiracy theories and and genocide, uh, Middle Eastern phobia, and yes, etc. Yeah. But but that that's um, sort but, of an organization, but, though. But yeah, as far as I love this because I love the idea of a city, a a very human city. Um, humanoid, but let's face it, largely human uh-huh. city, um, which is, which is, uh, it's not a mom, but it's still fairly metropolis-esque to a certain degree. And right smack dab in the center of it is the, this, this sort of unassuming, um, uh, 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 mercenary, Hunter of Monsters business that has a secret that that has a basement to a secret ziggurat run by a distinctly non-humanoid creature. Yeah, I love that so much. I, I think we're I think we're all pretty much in agreement on that part. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, the idea that and 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 that's a trope I think that you find a lot of, particularly in Forgotten Realm settings, but you know, really throughout all of D and D fiction in my in my experience is mm-hmm. you know the the person behind the scenes, the the powerful puppet master or fixer or the one in the know who's basically arranging circumstances to happen, frequently is not just well, he's a really strong wizard or, well, he's a really smart guy or, well, he's a, he's a really well-connected criminal, mm-hmm. they, you know, and, and that's one thing that I enjoy about settings like this, where if you've got a very wide swath of, of sapient possible characters, you know, yeah, use the exotic, weird, yep. off the wall, out of left field, creepy stuff as the the individuals who are who are hiding back there, you know, yeah. I mean, and the simple one is, oh, they were a dragon all the time and they just shapeshifted, you know, but I mean, even with the with the release of Xanathar's, uh, you know, you've got Xanathar himself. Uh, yes, who is a beholder. Good, right, who's a beholder. Well, in this case is a beholder pretending to be another beholder. But yeah, anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and. I feel like I, I love that trope of, you know, yeah, no, it's you've got all these, you know, huge political power jockeying that's happening between these, you know, sort of more or less stereotypical elf dwarf human humanoid races on mm-hmm. the surface. But the people with the real power are nothing like your standard bipedal humanoid kind of culture people. And yeah. the, the thing that I like about that is from a from a from a from a uh, sort of a soci- uh, sociological perspective is that it, it makes people who are experiencing these stories more comfortable with the idea of a non-standard character in power. And it, through use of like going so far into the air quotes other that it's now a beholder or a sphinx or a dragon. Um, And when you, when, when, because we think in literary terms, because our brain is made up of of language and words that are used in literature. um, When you start thinking and accepting the idea of these non-standard creatures, these non-standard entities in a fantasy setting, it becomes that much easier to begin to accept and acknowledge non-standard people in the real world that might be in these settings. Mm -hmm. And also given that 
freak and uh, the kind of flip side to that is unfortunately i would say a lot of writers tend to take this sort of character the definitely non-humanoid person in the shadows you're yeah make them a villain yeah says, that was is fairly obviously at least neutral if not a positive yeah. influence and that i think was much more helpful to the trope than the standard Oh, it's the monster behind the scenes. Now we have to kill them, you know, or whatever. Yeah, and and I think I think that's I think that is part of what I think that's part of why all three of us like this character in particular, right. <laughs> um, because it it does take that it takes that 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 idea and it then takes it a step further and says, well, not only is this a not only is this a non-standard person in a position of power, it's also a non-standard person in a position of power that's being characterized as a good guy or as a as a as a protagonist rather than an antagonist. Um, which I think is definitely, uh, uh, at least for me, is one of the reasons why I really like this character. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I think, Jeremy, were you trying to add on to something, or, or were we... Uh, no, I was trying to say what you just said. Okay. <laughs> what you guys just said. <laughs> we're hey, so well, Thank you for taking my, taking my argument. <laughs> Holy shit, all three of us are on the same page about something. We're in sync. All right. This is so weird. Anyways, um, so, uh, uh, I lost my place. Fuck. Okay. Uh, the Gunner Sphinx, the ancient creature who's kept watching the Temple for centuries, tells them that they are now part of a group that will help keep the world safe from dark creatures. And as she speaks, her eyes flash, and suddenly everyone feels a sharp burn on their shoulder, which instantly heals, but leaves a distinctive brand on them. Uh, she tells them that using the stone in the chamber, she can see vast distances, including wherever her mate is in the world. She welcomes them all into the fold and then flies away. Vanessa leads them back up the stairs and into the main floor of the, of the guild hall. Vax questions their relationship with the guild, and Vanessa explains that their guild is there first to hunt evil things and second to make money. Vex enjoys the idea of killing things for money, and Vanessa hands pouches to everyone, which they split evenly for their assistance with the Hydra killing. Their business at hand done, Vanessa leaves the group to talk. Finally, along with each other, the team has a lot of things to share about their individual challenges, and they, they basically do, and we have the sort of the getting the band back together moment here. Yep. Um, which is, uh, which getting the band back together, by the way, is a phrase you may or may not have heard in relation to storytelling, which is many times is the entire point of a movie. Uh, in this case, <laughs> I mean, it's down to one scene. Usually is. This is, this isn't so much a getting the band back together moment because I feel like that's a phrase that is used more often for it's, uh, used for, for someone, a group that's been, split up and basically defunct for a long period of time. Yeah. It's the reunion tour. This is the group sort of split off for like three days and came back. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I I think getting the band back together, I think like the main one, but yeah, yeah. I I kind of agree with Jeremy. Usually the, 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 the piece starts out with the band being broken up as the actual status quo as has been for quite some time. And then you have to go find everybody and convince them, no, no, we need to get back in the life. And yeah, then we correct. have Oceans yeah. 11, 12. More, yeah, more Blues Brothers 2000, less Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but still, there's that, there is a, there is a very kind of emotionally cathartic yeah. and fulfilling, even when it has, the, when the group has only been split up for a few days, getting everybody back together 
yeah, you can make it an entire narrative or you can make it one scene. But mm-hmm. there's, there's emotional kind of fulfillment to be found. Yeah, in yeah. in both. And there's uh, what I what I really enjoy about this is that was a scene that could have been done very quickly, gotten out of the way very quickly, and okay, let's move on to the story. And this is one of those things that I consistently love about the uh, loved about this show from the beginning, but but it continues to come up is that those kinds of scenes are given time to breathe and given time to that, that whole thing is, I mean, from, you know, when the point the episode starts to when they're finally getting ready to leave Vasselheim is the first hour and a half of this, this episode. Yeah. Um, It is basically not quite, but basically half the episode. And it does go on for quite a while. This, you know, getting back, yeah, everybody getting mm-hmm. back together, talking about, you know, oh, we lost the carpet, we killed the carpet, the which is amazing. And and so I'm not going to detail this whole scene because it it is that's all it really is. But I do want to use this as a stepping point real quick to talk about why we think this is something that doesn't get a lot of time to breathe in other games. I know, like especially in our game. We have a we have several games in which we have lots of ensemble casts, and mm-hmm. these sort of scenes don't mature very often amongst our amongst our groups. And I'm I'm interested in what we think the reason for that might be. I mean, I think that there's a couple of reasons. Um, uh, like how to phrase some of this stuff? Um, I, I think the I think you the can number throw me one, under the bus. I don't care. I think, I think the number one reason is it's kind of awkward. Um, there is there is a certain level of awkwardness when you're doing it over the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you're when you're doing um, it over the internet, and, and especially when you when you're talking about things that you were all present for. Mm-hmm. The, big, the big thing that helps this scene in particular, I think, is that um, for the press for episodes, not everybody at the table was there. They may have watched, but they weren't there to do the yep. in character inputs, um, and so that definitely i think helps i think that um there's a couple of things that come into play i know like when when it's when it's uh games i'm running um those scenes don't i mean i i will throw out you know the regular okay it's watch first watch that you know, that that sort of thing and sometimes stuff comes from it and sometimes stuff doesn't um but I think also because I tend to slow burn storylines as a whole, or not necessarily slow burn, but plot them out for super, super long-term arcs, I feel like I have to keep the plot going so people, so that the players feel like they're the, we haven't completely lost sight of the plot. And when there's the number of people that we usually have on our game in our games, um, that means that you have to generally plot for you gen- generally have to time account for like okay a fight and that fight's going to take anywhere from a half an hour to two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I also for, for the games that I run. It frequently doesn't doesn't mature, doesn't happen much because I find at least as as in both a, a storyteller and a player, I am a huge proponent of you know, rule zero is have fun. 
Mm-hmm. Rule 0.5 is don't fucking split the goddamn party. <laughs> At least as far as my narratives go. <laughs> so generally these don't mature much because again like you said when when the group breaks up it's for usually no more than 5 to 15 minutes of in-game time and then it's all right make sure you're back in contact with people make sure you know i'm i'm constantly pushing trying to push the narrative together as a group and there's a number of reasons for that both uh both in-game and metagame but when you have an ensemble and you're trying to make sure that that they work together as a unit, it doesn't, it's not very conducive to having broken them apart like this. Now, this was obviously a very well planned and well executed uh, split. Mm-hmm. And so, but like you said, you know, in character, there's a, there's, and in the real world, there was a, there was a, a level of disconnect uh, that that very closely paralleled themselves, and so it's a lot easier for that to be a natural progression when everybody does come back together and is sitting around the same table again. And I, I, I find in my mind, I, I feel like <clears throat> in 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 Critical Role, there's a lot of emotional weight on these characters, uh-huh. and I feel like a lot of that is because they are so at this point so familiar with the world, or at least with how how matt runs their world that they don't have to worry about what they do or don't know they just know what they know and don't worry about anything else mm-hmm. a lot of times in our games at least the games that i've run and that i've 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 been in and witnessed there's a lot of hesitation to necessarily try things be, that haven't been explicitly planned out by everybody mm-hmm. uh, because there's that hesitation of, well, I don't know how that might work. I don't know what I can do. Um, Have you met Liz? Uh, exactly. Well, this is <laughs> there this are is some different obvious. Yes, yeah, this is obvious. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, I'm but thinking yeah, of no. things like you know things like in Shadowrun. Um, whenever mm-hmm. I run a Shadowrun game, because it's such a unique and individualistic setting, and then when I then again make a new setting on top of that, uh, there's a lot like well, I don't know, I don't know what I can do on during our downtime. What can I do? Well, you could search the net for what for this specific thing. Okay, I search the net for that specific thing, but like. There's, you know, there's there's a hesitation to. There's not a lot of freeform. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's there's a, there's a hesitation from ignorance. I feel, or not just from not knowing the things you can do. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's that, and I also think like when I'm thinking about myself and the times that I that I'm more comfortable do it. It's frankly just times I'm more confident in my character. Yeah, and understanding who my character is. And who they are in relation to the rest of the group. So, like, it's a lot easier for me to do it. Oh, this is this is really a, an, an inside baseball final show films one a version of <laughs> critical thinking. Um, it's a lot easier for me to do that with Selena, for example. Yeah, because I I'm very confident in who Selena is and who. She is in relation to all most of that group of uh, of characters. It it's a lot trickier for me to do that with someone like uh, Kinvalar in in our Adventurers League game because 
it's not a character type that I am as comfortable with. And that's sort of why I did it is is to sort of expand my horizons as far as that goes or, or push myself, but I'm not as comfortable with that. And that character being part of a very specific society, there's a lot that goes in that. And I'm not quite, you know, I don't want to, push outside of what's acceptable bounds for that. So the, I end up in, I, we end up, I think that game ends up doing a lot less than say a, a GTR. Um, yeah, and, I, and I think part of that then comes up against where we have a sort of a mixture of that. We have some players that are really, really, really know their characters and some players that don't. And, and in, 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 in some cases, some care, some players that don't necessarily care to, uh, be that emotionally invested in their game. yes. Mm-hmm. So, oh yeah, there is definitely that too. Yeah, I would say um, the same for like uh, in our L five R game. Hayato is one of the characters, and and I do agree with you that character confidence plays in a lot more than setting yep. confidence because yeah, I mean, yeah, you can. I mean, I still don't know a fraction of how Rokugani society works or anything like that, but I do know that Hayato <laughs> is. You know, he's. He's, I know what his priorities are. I know the, 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 the tasks he's been assigned both by his mentor and his lord. Um, you know, and I know how he views and what he believes is the part and role of everybody else in this little, you know, squadron of, of ambassadors that we've got rolling. And so that gives me a very sturdy scaffolding to start hanging decisions on mm-hmm. as far as what my, ninja dude is going to do in any given situation even though i'm not necessarily familiar with you know the the culture or things that 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 the character is running into i can i can more confidently make what i feel is a reasonable rational decision as to the reactions of my character in any given situation yeah and then i think Finally, I think the the, the one last big thing that, that there because there's there's one last thing that I I think we've covered a lot of things that 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 are part of it <clears throat> that stops a lot of gaming groups from getting to that level that Critical Role is in at least in this part and in a lot of, and this also applies to storytelling narrative storytelling both in film and and books. Um, when we write we we at Final Show Films have a tendency to make antagonistic characters to each mm-hmm. other. Yes, yes, we do. Which has a narrative storytelling potential of when those two characters clash. Uh But moments like this in Critical Role happen because these characters, even though they do still have inter-party conflict on occasion, these characters view each other more as a family than as antagonistic uh, individuals. Um, There's a lot more... Their characters are... And by that means they are tied to each other by more emotions than just frustration and spite. Um, and that allows for a very more that, that I think provides a more comfortable uh, from a player perspective, a more comfortable setting to then do the sort of, Oh, we're just going to take an hour and a half to chat amongst ourselves mm-hmm. um, thing because their characters they're not only do they want to be playing with each other and they want to be in the room with each other, their characters also want to be spending time together. See, not, are, are not just thrust together by happenstance. It's funny that you say that because when I'm thinking, I'm 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 looking at at, at strictly my characters in this case. Mm-hmm. But when I'm looking at the care uh, at my characters that I've done, 
uh, for our games, the ones that I have probably had the most interaction with, with like this sort of interaction with, with, with party characters have been, I won't even say the antagonistic ones, but no, actually, that's probably the best way to put it. People like Selena. People like um, uh, uh, Anders. Um, uh, people like that are the ones, whereas the ones I've had that are more uh, um, uh, more, I don't want to say accommodating, but, but more positive relationship, quote-unquote, I would say, yeah, have been characters like Nerali, or I guess the one exception to that is Lux. And that was actually the one I was going to counterpoint. Lux would be that one exception. The time where, I think, as a group, the time where we have the most of these moments is in Star Wars. Like, Collectively, of all of our games, the most of these sort of moments have happened in Star Wars. That's also a game with that's also a game with the least amount of players that we have. It's true. It's true. That that I think is the factor there. Um, And I will also. So this is because this has become the talking about final show films talk. talk I mean, it's 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 the it's the thing that we're all experts on that we relate to the situation. (laughs) We are experts on ourselves. Yes. We are glad that you have turned in critical role fans. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's still it's something that no, can no, be yeah. translated but, across. But for, but, yeah, yes, no, absolutely. From a from a, from a meta analytical perspective, you know, yeah. But I think and I think the confidence if you if you don't have confidence in the characters' interactions, but you do have confidence in the player interactions, each of those can compensate for the other. Yeah. You know, if, mm-hmm. you know, because, because if, you know, it's the idea that you can, you can walk into your living room and say, hey, shit brain, with a lot fewer uh, consequences than you can walk up to a stranger on the street and say, hey, shit brain. Um, and, you know, all of us as players, you know, I mean, yes, we're all good friends and that sort of thing, but there is a level of disconnect because most of us live in wildly disparate cities and that sort of thing, you know, so there's there can if there's tension between the 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 player characters and you're not uh you don't have that out of game relationship in depth the way that you would with somebody that you might sit or, sit around a table with physically every week um you know there there can be some tension there um oh yeah and and those have to sort of compete and can can change the the group dynamic. Whereas with, you know, the critical role cast, they've been friends for years. They work together. They spend, you know, every multiple hours, every Thursday night, each week, you know, the, and they've been doing this for years and years and years. We so have, can, we have, we have now been doing this for years. Now too, we have, you're right. And it. well, that's, that's going to be my <laughs> next point. The, the level of interaction that I had in our, in Grand Terra Adventures, which is the first campaign that I ever played with you guys, and the level of interaction that my characters now have with characters that you guys play, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's amped up by several degrees of exponentiality, yes. uh, in terms of the, the comfort that I can feel when we're crafting a n- narrative cooperatively. And so, yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, the better you know the people you're telling stories with, 
the more comfortable you'll be and, peeling back some of those layers of vulnerability and saying, you know, yeah, no, let's dig into the emotions of this. And that's actually, actually, Jeremy, you did bring up a perfect uh, example of that because you, the first character you played with us was Nerali. Mm-hmm. And then now in that same playgroup, minus Jack, but plus Mara, um, you have Selena. Yep. And so it's that, like, just in that sort of direct chain of ascension there, um, we have that, that, that sort of perfect example of when you first meet people versus when you're more comfortable with them. Oh, yeah. Cause that, Nerali was very specifically created to be the way that she was yeah. in terms of a, well, I don't, I don't really know these people. And so I don't know exactly how, what their play styles are going to be. So I'm not going to make the person who, who, who drastically personality clashes. I'm going to create the super, super meek, doesn't really say anything and gives her plenty and plenty of time to get a feel for these people before they'll ever have any idea how she thinks, what she thinks about them. I find it interesting. I'm talking about the character, not me. I find no, it. We knew what you thought of us pretty much within the first ten minutes. <laughs> I, I, I find it interesting as well the differences in approach to that first character, that first time telling a story with people, or that first time mm-hmm. on like, in theater, the first time being on stage with 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 other people, how you approach it. Um, you like with. With Nerali, you 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 use that sort of you know not much not much footprint character who can then lean in later. Yeah. Whereas I do things like Corlin, which is a character that leaves a very big footprint and lets you know right off the bat what he's about. <laughs> <laughs> which is the same very much the same thing I do when introducing characters in in narrative and and in theater. Um, yeah. You I I and that that that's a very stage theater thing. You, it, it, there's a phrase in theater called you lead with, you lead with your nose. Why do you lead with your nose? Cause your nose is the biggest feature on your face. Right. Um, you, you, you lead with, which is not always true, but you lead with whatever is biggest about your character, uh, in, in, in a theater, in a theatrical sense, which, you know, in, in, in Corlin's, in Corlin's example is that he's a big guy that likes to fight. So his first introdu- introduction to a lot of people was picking a dude up by the throat and using, uh, and, and hitting somebody else with him so hard, both of them caught on fire, which immediately tells you a little bit about Corlin. Yeah, uh, yeah okay. that, that was kind of my strategy with Fakir, the character from uh, from our first Grand Terra campaign as well. You know, yeah, he was he was weird and he was offbeat and he was interested in uncovering every possible secret that he partially caught a hint of, um, and definitely did not always look before he leapt. And I enjoyed putting him out there as that, so that ho- hopefully was my objective that all the other characters would then realize, oh, okay, this is who this person is. I now have confidence as to where I stand as regards to this character. I can relax a little bit because I'm not having to second guess what their motivations are and what they're thinking and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I find I find I find the 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 differences, and that's something for those of you out there that are writers and and think about think about that when you're introducing a character, uh, or when you're seeing a character be introduced, how. How do they imprint themselves on the world? Yeah, like first introductions are are important, um, and 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 that is something to think about when you're writing characters, when you're making characters, when you're when you're directing characters in film and theater. Uh-huh. 
Um, hey, isn't there an episode of Critical Role going on here somewhere? There is. And so after the group has a big powwow talking about everything say, that they that well, yeah. talking about, um, it's okay. I'm skipping like three paragraphs because the, all of that time was them getting back to know each other again. Uh, they yeah they get back together they get to know each other they 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 get to know each other they they get to know what happened with each other um they mm-hmm. then go out they then go out shopping and we have a, a a really bad bit of bartering by grog which makes which I think you mean and the best bartering ever which physically and visibly harms Laura Bailey <laughs> <laughs> but that's a fantastic storytelling device of putting the character in a position where they are either forced or coerced or just stumble into doing something that they are not good at yeah. and are not going to do well at. Yes. And just, you know, it can be fun to just see where that leads sometimes, which mm-hmm. is kind of what Travis did with, with Grog in this case. Um, and it can be wildly entertaining. And, you know, it's, it's, it's great to see characters fail. And granted, the stakes in this one weren't necessarily... Uh, too lethal or too high, but there were no. definitely stakes uh, as far as his success or failure went that that the audience cares about. You know, what is going to happen when this, you know, fairly dull individual who is not all that quick on the uptake is suddenly confronted with a rather skilled negotiator who is trying to, you know, bleed him for all the, the money that he can. And then to have the party's rather skilled negotiator forced to the sidelines to watch <laughs> despair as it happens. <laughs> I, I, no shit, I cannot hear the phrase dragon's blood without hearing Laura Bailey say, You're such a dick. <laughs> <laughs> it is, I mean, and it, it was such a, because. From every standpoint, looking at it, it's a great character moment for Grog. It's a great uh, uh, performance moment for Travis. And it is perhaps, I think it's fair to say, that's one of the single funniest moments in the entire series. And and to be clear for the... uh, to be clear for those listening, this would be the part of the episode where Grog uh, goes, Grog and Vex, and does anybody else go with them, or is it just Grog and Vex? No, no, it's Grog and and Percy. Grog Vex and is Percy. not there. Vex is not uh, there. That's, that's specifically, Vex, yes. yes. And she kept, she, Laura keeps trying to say things, and Travis keeps going, you're not there. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Grog and Percy, Grog and Percy go to buy potions. Healing potions yep. and some other materials and some black powder and stuff, and I believe it's at the healing potion. That's at the healing potion yeah. merchant mm-hmm. that Grog decides that he's going to barter for the healing potion. Mm-hmm. And Percy just lets him. And J- Talison has the biggest shit-eating grin on his face the entire time until that <laughs> moment where he's like practically falls out of his chair, <laughs> proclaiming the need for a leash. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was so good. It's such a good... One of the greatest. Dude, it was definitely one of the really good, you know, character-building moments that, uh-huh. that are very minor in a lot of narrative storytelling, but but stick out in your memory if they're done correctly uh-huh. and do a lot to inform you what this character is and what they're, what they're about. Yep. Um, it was roughly about this time as well that I think uh, Tiberius went after his pet, I think, right? Yes. Tiberius was looking for his... his Pseudo his yeah. weird 
bladed, double bladed quarter staff yeah, and no his pet pseudo dragon. Uh, I have no idea what his plan for the quarter staff was, but the the pet something with mirrors. Probably, yeah, it was going to be plated with mirrors. Probably. Um, no, I thought, I thought this was his his telekinetic shuriken thing. No, that's later. I think. I, think no, this was, I think this was the prototype for it, though. Oh, okay. This was basically him trying to figure out how to 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 to. At least this was always my impression. How to squeeze the idea of uh, being able to use a weapon like a spear or a glaive, despite the fact that he wasn't proficient in it. Right, because it's just a quarter staff with a blade. Yeah, that's called a double-ended spear, and uh, you can't use those. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can. You're just not good at them. But um, right, you're just no good this at this was the this was sort of the beginning of of Tiberius's uh, in, uh, inventive attempts at creating new weaponry. <laughs> right. but that is fantastic. You honestly the the most. Which I mean, yeah. Granted, he totally stole that name right out of the comics, but you know, um, <laughs> I uh, like. Uh, but I, I liked the scene and and its ramifications and results that happened. Um, I felt like everybody did an excellent job at making it interactive. Because when when things like when things like that are are introduced to a narrative, you know, sometimes it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, there's this character, and one of their bells and whistles is they have a pet who sometimes does things that might be narratively, you know, that they're 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 a Batman utility belt pet um yeah. but the the story immediately made this this random pseudo dragon into a character which i very much enjoyed you know it wasn't yeah. it's not it wasn't just a tool that was going to be you know stashed in the inventory list and only brought out when they remembered um and that it's honestly one of my favorite orion contributions to the entire campaign is coming up with the idea to bring this other character in that's going to honestly it adds a little bit of depth to Tiberius I find yeah um you know because <clears throat> the way Tiberius has been portrayed thus far you kind of get the feeling that he's one of those characters where literally everything is just a tool and that includes his friends and the people he meets mm -hmm. and you know it's like and you know everything ha only has so much value in in such a way that it as it's pragmatic or useful. But this little pseudo dragon that he picks up all of a sudden becomes very quickly a three dimensional character that both he <coughs> as Tiberius is personally invested in, but that the rest of the group is sort of drawing around and becoming invested in as well. And that was, that was a really nice human moment from, yeah, it from was. Tiberius that I, I do. I do kind of feel like, the initial seeking out felt very much like I want to get another cool toy I can use against right. the bad mm -hmm. guys. Yeah. And it was the sickliness and, and that sort of thing that really changed that dynamic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it did turn out definitely being a, being one of, one of Tiberius's better traits and qualities. Yeah. Um, was, is his, relationship to Lockheed. Yep. Uh, so after they, they this series of events happens, they all get back together and discuss what to do next. Um, and it's decided that they're going to head up to, to Pyra. 
home of the fire tribe of Keyless people and continue on with her Aramente. Uh, before they leave, they meet uh, a man who is a cartographer named Tyrik or Tyriok. Tyriok. Uh, who, who, AKA who, the best character. AKA oh. Jack's favorite character in the, in yep. the series. Mm-hmm. The yep. best character. And, 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 and when, uh, whenever you take those really who am I in critical role personality quizzes online, I come up as Tyriok. Mm-hmm. And, and definitely the, the Tyriok is the Tyriok is the most lovable doormat you've ever met. <laughs> um, he is my, and I know this is a high bar, but he is my single favorite Mercer critical role voice. Um, by a long shot. Like, it's just something about that character, that, that voice that I just love. Because it perfectly fits the character so well. Um, okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, my, for those interested, mine is the, who's, I can never remember his name, but the guard, the captain of the guard for their castle. Uh, uh, uh Jareth. Yeah. Just because it's my people. Uh, <laughs> I'm Victor. But anyways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they meet Tyriok, and he provides them with some directions and and some part parchments to make notes to help him add to his maps. Um, they he, he basically points them out, and this is the way you want to go to get to Fire. I haven't been out there really much, but here's some things. Write down things you might find so I can add to it. Uh, and then they head out beyond the walls and start the task of climbing the mountains to the home of Keyless people. Um, they make camp and. They, you know, Grog takes first watch, which proves to be very quiet, and he falls asleep. Uh, and they all wake, much to Grog's shock, because he suddenly realized he was asleep, and make their way along the path uh, on the sec- uh, near the middle of the second day, continuing up the mountain. Um, eventually, they notice that there is a stationary storm hovering over the peaks. And as they press forward, they realize that the mountain path is going to be too steep for the horses to traverse, so they leave them at the bottom and continue on in foot. With with Keyleth uh, very exuberantly, de- you know, explaining um, everything about the 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 Ashari and how they're tasked with defending the realm from things spilling over in the elemental planes, and the Pyra are the tribe that deal with fire elemental plane. That she, uh, this is sort of the last place that she knows of that her mother was at, which is a bit of you know a little bit more of Keyleth's backstory. Um, she has no idea if she if her mother ever made it here or if she did what happened when she left, and those fears and sort of uh the unknown nature of this tribe has her a little shaken, uh, but the group assures her that they've got her back and after a few hours of walking, they arrive in an area that levels off uh running into a deep running through a deep ravine and <clears throat> find as they as they go dry wind begins to blow smoke and ash all around them as they get closer to pyra a few of them cannot suppress a cough uh which causes them to which doesn't doesn't really hinder them but uh does cause some noise which prompts vex to see some shadowy figures atop the ravine she has no idea who or what they are uh but without and then shortly thereafter a large boulder comes falling from above them and clips vax while the others are looking in the direction it came from uh, three figures, each with two heads, are lifting boulders to throw at them. And seeing this, Tiberius, they they roll initiative, and Tiberius uses a telekinesis to catch a rock and throw it back. Um, and we find they are under attack by what they, they're attacked by Ettons, right? Yes, I believe that's what they. Yeah, two-headed giant. Ed, yeah, Ettons. correct. 
but yeah, no, you're when you're walking up a mountain and you're in a kill box and there's native creatures who can throw rocks very far. Bad shit happens sometimes. That's a nothing about it. It's pretty standard events for traveling through ravines. Well, uh, if you travel through a Tolkien ravine, started it once again. Uh, yeah, if, and, if you travel yeah. through a ravine, you will have rocks thrown at you from above. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep, that's sort of a that's just what happens in fantasy. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to do it. This should be a sign at all ravines: beware of rocks being thrown at you. <laughs> I prefer my players looking up as something uh, as something comes up from out of the ground. Oh, you mean like uh, oh, some sort of tunneling worm that comes out of the wall and eats your face? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I should have left. should have left them all there to die. <laughs> Could have, should have, would have. Yeah. Uh, um, <clears throat> but yeah, so they, they have a fight with these Ettons. Tiberius using his telekinesis to throw, uh, to throw the boulders back or try to. Keyleth pulling up a wall of stone to give them cover, uh, Percy doing what Percy does and firing th- firing at things. Um, and as they as they actually uh, do a significant amount of damage to the rain creatures, the last of them drops the rocks with trying to, uh, trying to throw and uh, curses them as they run away, which then allows them to make the rest of the ravine, which crests into a hill and opens into a valley. Uh, the the area they find themselves in appears to once have been a very active volcano, and may still be. Small pools of thick mud belch sulfurous gas, adding to their issues breathing. And we find ourselves we find ourselves in the swamp of sorrows, except minus the trees and the ROUSs. Um, which is a that's a reference, anyways. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh. <laughs> And they continue on. They notice that some trees in the center of the area are uh, that the terrain has become more rocky and jagged. And Keyleth assumes that this is probably cooled lava uh, with bits or bits with bits broken and chipped away from some of their use. Uh, as they as they make their way closer to the trees, a loud grinding of stone announces a series of stone walls that spring up, enclosing them with a final piece sealing the sky out. So just. Uh, as Keyleth has her stone walls turned against her. Well, not hers, but the spell. Mm-hmm. Um, Grog and Pike slam their weapons of the rock, chipping away, but not doing very very, very little of it, and, and Vax talks everyone down, reminding them that they're here for Keyleth, and they need to let her do the talking. Uh, a hole opens up, and a man steps in. He asks them what they're doing there, and Keyleth tells him that she is there to continue her aramente. Their captors look around and question her further before removing the wall and allowing her to follow them into the main part of their village. Uh... They are basically the person that is talking to them is named Calhoun, uh, who is a member of the fire tribe of the of the Ashari. Uh, it seems that they had stumbled upon the Ashari's basically front door, um, in, in 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 their travels, and that's what prompted the stone walls. Which that that is another sort of narrative storytelling trope that happens that that, that happens a lot where you know first first encounter with a not with an unknown force and you're just overwhelmed by their power mm-hmm. um, and sometimes find... it's established still as a power discrepancy and sometimes it's sort of uh mitigated as you learn more but i think that that's that's one of those things where what you find in real life frequently 
is reflected in fiction. You know, when, when, when a new culture shows up on your doorstep, you tend to try and put your strongest foot forward. Um, which goes back to, you know, human tribalism in the mists of time, probably. Um, yep. Because fear is still one of the base human emotions that we experience mm -hmm. and it motivates a great deal of behavior hey so we're back uh those of you that are listening to this no time will have passed at all but for those of you that know the production side of things which would be the three of us it's been about a week um we we had we sort of ran out of time last week recording the episode and had to put it on hiatus for a bit uh so this is Probably more information than you needed to know. Anyways, right? I, I, I honestly thought we were just going to go in like nothing had changed. Well, no, because I, I wanted to preface it with that because there will likely be instances of us repeating ourselves or not not continuing thing thoughts that we had had at the end of la at the end of last week's talk because we don't remember. <laughs> yep. And so to cover over any incongruities there, that's why. Anyways, um, I believe at the last point we were at, and if it wasn't, then it is now. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the uh, yes, the the group had um, I, I've already lost my fucking place. Yes, they 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 showed up by Yeah, they they were they were boxed in uh, by rock walls, um, and and. A hole had opened up in the swalk wall, and a man stepped out who Keyleth recognized as Calhoun, or, or, or who was introduced who introduced himself as Calhoun, a mm -hmm. member of the Pyra uh, tribe of the of the Ashari. Um, <clears throat> uh, they 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 questioned Keyleth for a bit before removing the walls and allowing her to follow them into the main part, uh, the group as a whole, to follow them into the main part of the village. Uh, Calhoun led them to speak to the flame speaker. Uh, we learn that Calhoun is the gatekeeper of Pyra and also the yeah. seventh president of the United States. Yes. yes. Spelled differently, but you know. Um, the flame speaker being the leader of the Pyra. And as they go, druids flank them on each side with weapons drawn, keeping a close, constant eye on them. Uh, after about 30 minutes, they find themselves walking between a series of stone huts made uh, from the rock around them, find themselves actually in the village proper now. And they see people are sort of poking their heads out from everything, looking out and sort of uh, seeing what all the commotion is about. Um, at the end of the village, they reach a forest that has been basically a charred and petrified forest with no green in the area at all. Um, and Calhoun stands and waits when the ground suddenly shakes and, and spilling a uh, spilling molten rock uh, from within, and a man steps out of the forest, uh, a large and well-built individual who speaks directly to Keyleth, telling her that he, he is Circonus, the flame speaker of the pirate tribe of the Ashari. Um, he speaks of her mother, giving condolences that she never completed uh, the Aramente that, that Keyleth is now here to do. Uh, he tells Keyleth that she was in Pyra, but a few, but only for a few days, and left their village about ten years ago. Uh, since since uh, since Keyleth is here, that means that her mom never made it, uh, never completed her quest. 
Uh, but he will help Keyleth complete her journey and leads her into the heart of the forest, uh, where she meditates, feeling the heart of the mountain. Uh, Sikonis asks what she wishes to learn there, and Keyleth tells him of a vision she had of her own death, uh, because she was not able to do what she wanted, what she was needed. Uh, his test begins, and the rest of Vox Machina are needed to help her complete it. As they walk into the center of the Cinder Grove, Keila tells the group about her vision, which she had been hiding, uh, which she had been hiding from the group uh, for a while. She talks of two paths: one in which she is an elder and a leader of the Ashari, and the other in which she died young. The members of Vox Machina fighting to avenge her death, with teams streaming down her face, the images of her past visions. Uh, she tells them that she will press forward, but hopes that she doesn't make a fatal mistake. Tears. Tears. Yep. Did I say something other than tears? You said teams. You said teams did i say teams you said said teams teams. as in like group of like like a sports team yes i I was going to say legion of superheroes Uh, with with (laughs) with tears streaming down her face she tells the team that she will press forward exactly that's where that's anyway (laughs) sorry now that now that we've we've clarified what exactly was streaming down keyless face Teams of people. Um, yes. Left cheek was West Coast Avengers. Right cheek was no. Okay, never mind. Must not make jokes. Um. <laughs> so I believe both of you wanted to talk about visions and prophecy. Let's let Jeremy start. Visions and prophecy. I love visions and prophecy so much in storytelling. Because when it's done, now it can be done poorly. It can, it, it can be done really, really bad. Uh, when it's done poorly, it's basically inserting spoilers into your story as, as part of the text. But when it's done well, it is obviously overt foreshadowing. Um, like write out big blurry neon sign foreshadowing, but When it's done really well, it can give you uh, ideas of of things to excite you, and it can really draw audiences and and readers and what have you in to be like, ooh, this sounds interesting. I'm I'm curious when this is going to happen, and it builds anticipation. Uh, The other thing that 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 I really enjoy that it does is. And really, almost almost more important than 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 the foreshadowing is the way that visions and prophecy uh, um, affect the characters and how they reveal, uh, as a storytelling tool, how they reveal uh, uh, elements of the characters that we haven't seen yet that may come to pass, or simply as a a um sort of a spark for character mo- to to bring forth parts of character motivation that you haven't seen before um whether that's something that you're seeing in that character in the future um or or something that you're seeing in terms of how they react to suddenly getting this information um in this case, I, I think that it was particularly effective because it, 
I really like sort of the duality of it. And and obviously this is more focused and and the way that this worked was more on how we find out more about about who Keyleth is now because of of the vision that she had. Um and, and sort of what what that brings out of her and really brings her closer to the other characters. Um but but speaking in it as a whole. I just love visions and prophecy, and it's one of the things that I really, really uh, enjoy about genre storytelling that is not really an option in in non-genre storytelling. I, I will. I, I do want to point out, though, that while 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 visions and prophecy are very sort of interesting and, and powerful potential storytelling mechanics, they don't necessarily have to be all that complex. No, uh, the vision that Keyleth got was either you succeed or you fail. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Like right here, the the visions that she gets aren't aren't the foreshadowing kind. Um, no, they are. Yeah, this is more the character motivation type of type of 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 prophecy vision. Um, yeah. which which was done very well. Um. It, yeah, it's definitely those those two different different directions that that this can take. Um, but yes, if you have the opportunity to put it in organically and 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 have it make sense within your storyline, I always recommend vision and prophecy. Yeah, and and dreams play into that a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's 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 a number of sort of you know baseline mechanics of how you can have people hallucinate things um that will eventually be narratively significant um you know and you know obviously standard dreaming drug trips you know magic shit force ghosts whatever you want to put in um i think what what the the hook there for a lot of audiences is is composed of the fact that as humans we try and imbue meaning to as much as possible. And somewhere along the line, we decided that, you know, various things that may not legitimately have a significant level of meaning are now culturally carry meaning with them. You know, uh, that's where you get things like uh, interpreting zodiacs. That's where you get things like interpreting dreams and and Mm -hmm. various, uh, you know, things that are more or less from a scientific perspective a little closer towards the random chaotic aspects of the natural universe side and then you put a human next to it and the human decides no it actually means something more than than what is evident here and that's something that has resonated i think with with human consciousness for millennia and so we still carry a lot of that uh, sort of uh, socio-historical context with us. And the cool thing about fantasy is that as the director of this setting, this universe, these characters and their lives, you can say, yeah, no, what what in reality is more or less just the random firing of neurons as your brain goes through its various sleep cycles actually carries real functional practical significance whether that's a foretelling of future events that will eventually come to pass 
or an exploration of the interior workings of a particular character or group of characters, psyche and mind. And there's, there's a deeper level of significance that you can then say, you know, as the, as the writer, as the creator, you can invoke word of God and say, yeah, no, this, this has meaning. This isn't just a random dream that, uh, you know, involved a, a little too much ale and some 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 bad sausage. This is this is a real thing that is happening, and we're going to explore how that can affect and and shape actions that are taken to come. Right. Yep. And there are lots of different ways to sort of interpret that or to to internalize that um, from a writing perspective. You can do the you you can do the you know person receives vision, knows vision is true, follows vision, doing whatever. You can also do the 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 version that I like, which is somebody has a vision and thinks it's just oh that was just a bad that was just a bad you know uh, combination of meat and sausage. Um, and and it still, but yet the vision still impacts their daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it is yeah, just a, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was, I was just saying. I was depending on your right, there are a variety of different ways to do it. Yeah, and even if it is just a combination of of just a random dream, there's still a hell of a lot of value in that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think dreams definitely go along with with in in storytelling definitely go along with that sort of thing. In that, it can be very difficult to properly. Um, um, properly express or, or have characters reveal their motivations in a way that doesn't come off like uh, bad fan fiction, where it's, you know, this is my motivation. Like, literally, that is what they say. Um, so all of these elements where it's heading into a basically heading into your going into your headspace um are great ways to 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 really get in deep and dig deep on those characters and reveal <clears throat> things that they wouldn't otherwise say uh because as 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 people we all we don't want to talk about you know what drives us as people and and there are things that we don't want to say because it is uncomfortable to do so and this sort of thing is a great way to do that. Yep. It's also a great way to impart from, from a, from a D and D like sort of storyteller perspective. It's also a really great way to sort of impart, um, a directionality to your players mm-hmm. and sort of, uh, sort of give them without, without saying this is how you should be feeling from this encounter. Um, it's, it's a way to sort of give them a thing that will, coalesce the experience that they've previously have in a you know in an easily digestible chunk like you know here's this world here's a mostly negative dream after this negative experience and so you have this sort of you as the player can then contemplate oh what does that dream mean for my character when in as a way rather than having to say you're negatively affected by the events that you've just experienced right or if you're playing world of darkness a free pass to just traumatize the shit out of out of everybody around the table which is generally the goal of the world of darkness really right yeah that's yep. that's why i use it <laughs> so <laughs> back on back in pyra um 
so Keyleth uh, settles down in the middle of the cinder grove and, and the party sort of uh, lines up behind her for solidarity. And Sarconis uh, tells her that she must ask permission. Uh, she focuses and the pool of bubbling lava that sort of erupted from the ground previously begins to move. It starts to swirl, the lava moving faster and sending little bits and pieces up and Vax begins to have PTSD. Um, from his memories of the lava burning his foot. Of, the of getting his foot burned yep. off, yes. Yep, 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 yep. Um, uh, continues to, uh, reiterates that, uh, that uh, Keyleth needs to ask permission, uh, and the as this swirling lava speeds up and becomes this vortex of molten rock, uh, which Keyleth uh, sort of casts a protection spell and throws herself into, um, disappearing beneath the whirling lava. Uh, the party, uh, Vax, uh, nervously gives Vex a hug and then dives in after her. Uh, Tiberius follows and then the rest of the party follow after, uh, though Trinket needed a little encouragement first. Uh, because Trinket's a smart bear and knows not to dive into whirling pools of lava, <laughs> right. unlike these stupid the humans. Self-preservation than any of the actual player characters. Trinket is smartest character. Yep. Uh, they're dropped out on the other side, which is a barren landscape of rock and ash below a burning sun stretching out before them, and they have arrived in the elemental plane of fire. Keyleth meditates and tries to touch her, and tries to sort of get in touch with her mother, uh, who was on this path before, uh, detecting a faint path they begin to follow. Uh, as Vex casts Pass Without a Trace over them, as Vex always casts Pass Without a Trace, uh, with the host of preventing them from being seen by anything flying overhead. Uh, as they walk... Did you say something was flying overhead? Uh, well, yes, there were creatures flying overhead. Mm-hmm. And as they walk, they hear a loud screech from one of the creatures above them. Uh, Vex and Tiberius look up and suddenly realize that there is an ancient red dragon flying over them. Wall, wall, wall. Foreshadowing. Let's Ta-da. talk about foreshadowing, since we sort of talked about prophecy and whatnot already. And as a note, the mere fact that we're putting, that we're talking about foreshadowing may be a spoiler. So if you are sensitive to those, uh, uh, skip ahead yeah. or something. Hmm? Right, but foreshadowing is great, especially in a more serialized storytelling format because <laughs> it it gives you a sense of continuity. Um, and <laughs> continuity is important because it shows, it demonstrates a respect for the content that you have. Um, and by extension, often communicates respect for the audience as well. Um, nobody likes, well, okay. I shouldn't say nobody. I'm sure there's some people out there, but there are, there are fewer fans of that gotcha narrative, um, structure than than there are of people who enjoy a well-crafted thought out and and practical storyline development that makes sense whether you're reading it for the first time or you're looking back at it having mm-hmm. consumed it uh and 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 understanding the entire arc of the narrative well i mean m night Shyamalan made it made a you know made a career somehow uh, he made two. He made say, he, two good movies, and then Rince Lather repeated from then forward. 
And then when <laughs> he stopped doing it, he got even made, worse. But but still. I mean, yes, that's true. <laughs> that that is a valid point. He 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 was very good twice. Yep. He was he was very good twice. One one of these days, somebody's going to make a an Avatar: Last Airbender movie. One of these days. One uh, of these days, yeah, it'll happen. It has not happened yet. No, it hasn't happened yet. But but one of these days. Um, Anyways, yeah. <laughs> but and so items like this, um, where you know we we get an idea of things and beings that will then be called back to and referenced in very significantly in later story arcs having your your story seeded with those can be very very helpful now it's of course possible to overseed your story um you don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time foreshadowing something that's never going to come to pass because that's the other side of the coin if you're going to foreshadow it you have to use it later Chekhov's gun right yep. yes very much Chekhov's gun so, but, but given that this is sort of one of our first really big foreshadow moments, and they're frequently portrayed like this in, in fiction, where it's kind of a throwaway thing that looks a little more just atmospheric or evocative, mm-hmm. and it's not until later that you realize the significance of that one moment or that one shot or something like that. And uh, really quick, does anybody want to explain what Chekhov's gun is? If there is a gun in the first act, you must have that gun be used in some way in by the end of the the, the story. Right. You don't you don't put interesting things in the story that don't have anything to do or any practical application to the story. And what what one of the things that I love about foreshadowing that I think often gets overlooked. In its benefits is that reread, rewatch factor. Uh-huh. Um, like when you throw something in and it's and it's appropriately subtle. Um, and then you go through, and then something ultimately ends up coming from it later. There is a whole lot of viewer joy in going, oh shit, I need to go back and watch that again in a new context. And not only is it not only is it good for 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 the viewer, obviously it's good for the good for the story as well, because then you've from I don't want to say a business aspect, but essentially a business aspect. That has you. That has you. You consuming that story once again, and recommending it to other people, and and everything that goes on with that. Um, it's always great to be able to go back on stuff, and this is where I think a lot of a lot of twist stuff tends to get, uh, which is a different thing, obviously. The Shyamalan <coughs> <thing>. Westworld. <coughs> Westworld. Westworld is a great example of that. Um, but a lot of twist stuff really works well is that I can't count how many story, how many, how many movies, how many uh, TV shows, etc. I have gone back and rewatched multiple times because something new that I found 
lets me see everything in a different way. I think one of the big, the big most infamous ones is usual suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, in that the reveal at the end of who Kaiser Soze is has you go back and rewatching every single scene to see how it not only how did it actually work, but how do those how are those character interactions recontextualized? Yeah, um, and, and that can happen that can happen both with twists <clears throat> and with foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 is the the key word there. The recontextualization of mm-hmm. the narrative makes it more fun to. <clears throat> consume it a second or a third or repeated times yeah yeah whereas something that has no recontextualization value generally is about the same or less interesting the second third fourth time you you read it or watch it now to 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 put a very important note here for anybody who might be you know using this as a lesson and why you're doing that i don't know but um (laughs) (laughs) uh in 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 foreshadowing works very differently in the realm of uh, visual mediums like movies and television, and than it does in novelizations or in written storytelling or in 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 in, in things like D and D. In films and television, in film more often than television, but quite often in television as well. The thing that the foreshadowing is the thing that the thing that is being foreshadowed has already been put together. Has mm-hmm. all, by by the by the production team. It's all, either already been shot, or at least they, or at least the director already knows the answer to it. Um, in collaborative storytelling like D anD D, and in narrative, a lot of times, especially if you're if in writing, if you're especially if you're doing a multi book like storyline, sometimes that foreshadowing you might put something in there or be tempted to put something in there, but not know what it is until you get further along in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It's it's worth noting that don't overthink it, especially if you're if you're trying to be a writer and you're taking inspiration from movies. Uh, understand that the way those two uh, um, those two media use this technique is very different from each other, and mm-hmm. primarily in the implementation stages. Um, uh, and and a lot of times writing something that was an innocuous throwaway can later on become a foreshadowing event rather than it was foreshadowing the whole time. Yes. No, for real. Um, And I think there are, there are ways that is done effectively and there are ways that is not was speaking specifically about TV um, where like going back to Westworld again, uh, Westworld they shot, filmed, had that entire thing in the can by the time the show began airing. So mm-hmm. everything, that was one of those examples where they had that planned from the get-go. Oh, yeah. Um, then you turn to, 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 and I'm not trying to say that one is good and one is bad, but that was an example of where it was used effectively and it was done well in advance. Um, Compare that to a time it has not been used effectively and why it was not used effectively. I'm going to go to Heroes. 
Okay. Heroes. I was has... going to go to Lost, but you know, sure, that works too. Same concept, though. <laughs> right. Yeah. Very much. Um, these are both shows that were filmed, or that 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 are being, you know, the season is being filmed as the season is airing. And Hero, both of those shows, I think, and and I am a fan of both shows, up to a certain point. <laughs> um. Overall, I like. I think Lost was overall more effective throughout its run than Heroes. But <clears throat> using Heroes specifically in in third season was, which is generally accepted and is factually accurate. Of that's when that goes downhill. Um, they got to a point where they started writing and throwing in for uh, throwing in twists and and they started doing comic book storytelling which is doing stuff and 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 essentially doing retcons and and all this stuff that that laid out as foreshadowing and and, and twists but they were essentially doing it as a reaction to what people said <laughs> you and write the twist and then go back and justify the rep and go back and yes. justify the foreshadowing yes and they were doing it not ju- not just because of re- reaction, which can be good. I mean, you listen to your audience, um, but also for ratings, and, because and, the show was sinking in the rating. And, and that is not if you're doing anything because you are worried that you, you make a decision solely based on the fact that you think this will this will will stop a a reader or a viewer a hemorrhage. You're making the wrong choice, <laughs> uh, and and the really easy way to tell if if what you're doing is a actual thing that was foreshadowed, or something that you're just trying to retcon into for, being foreshadowed, is the reaction that your viewers or readers have. If it was appropriately foreshadowed or foreshadowed correctly, then they will get to the point of the twist and go, "Oh." If it was incorrectly foreshadowed, they will get to the point of the twist and go. What? <laughs> yeah. And those that's really the that's really the difference there. You don't want your audience to look at you and go, what the fuck did you just do? You want them to look at you and go, Oh, I see what you did there. Yes. For a number of reasons. The biggest one being audiences like to feel smart. Mm-hmm. Whether or not like whether or not they actually are or are not smart, I'm not making any judgments on on intelligence of average readers or viewers of any media. God knows I have no right to. But um Regardless of whether or not you are, you like to feel smart. And when you when you get to that point in the twist where the twist is about to happen, and we've all have had this happen where you put together the twist you think slightly before the film does, and like you're watching and you're like, oh, wait, I know what's about to happen. And then what's about to happen happens and you feel great because you figured it out. You've solved the puzzle. You solved yeah. the mystery without having to be told. That's what adequate. That's what good foreshadowing does. Mm-hmm. It gives you that feeling of accomplishment when all you did was sit and watch the goddamn movie. Right. <laughs> yes. No. Absolutely. Um, I think. I think the other big risk in in, in doing sudden <laughs> twists like that is that a lot of the time, you know, when when you're going through your craft and you're like, okay, and then all of a sudden this will happen, and this will be really cool. And by coming upon that sudden inspiration, you lose sight of what what your overall direction is, either for the story or for individual characters. 
And you don't necessarily, you don't usually want to do that. If, 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 if you have a character that has X purpose going forward and they are going to be this type of character and you've envisioned this whole, this whole arc for them. And then all of a sudden something happens for whatever reason, whether it's you're in the middle of the story and you just found the, found this really cool thing, which happens to either kill this character or completely sideline this character or whatever. You're selling your story short when you do that. Um, and I'll go back to the hero's example on this. Um, there, there, there is a character death in season three of, and I cannot remember the character's name. I think I have blanked it out from my mind because it made me so angry. Because this was a character that I really, really like. He was the immortal character in this show. Um, I mean, it, it was almost ten years ago. Yeah, that, that is true. He was the immortal character. Who was, there were a whole lot of problematic stuff with him. He was a Caucasian guy in Japan and blah, 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 blah. But he was really cool. And they spent half this season building up to him. And bringing him, bringing him out of, bringing him, he'd been buried for years. Anyways, uh, bring him out. And literally within two episodes, they kill him off to empower the obviously shoehorned in storyline plot of a father character for, for two of the main characters. Yep. Um, that's the kind of thing that when you build up expectations for a particular role and then just completely <clears throat> fuck it over, that's not the good kind of twist. Um, and, and whether they had further plans for them, not I've heard a lot where they did. And that was one, again, one of their sudden, okay, we need to do something <clears throat> shocking here. Whether they did or not, th- that's the kind of thing that's going to piss off your audience. Uh-huh. And then they're not going to want to, they're not, not only are they, not only do they lose that character that they are interested in, but this new storyline that you have, that, that, that you have set up, they're going to be actively resentful of that storyline and not get on board with it because of that. So that's a trap that you definitely want to avoid falling into. Yep. Meanwhile, back in the Fire Elemental Plane. <laughs> um, so yeah, they see a ancient red dragon flying yes. over them. Dun, dun, dun. They pause, holding their collective breaths and waiting for it to pass over them. And after a few minutes, it does just that, which allows them to press forward. This dragon is never seen again. Ever. Um, in in, in in this episode. Uh, uh, soon they arrive at a large stone obelisk with a massive ruby embedded in it, and as they approach, three people come from behind it. One appears larger than the others, and is in fact Circonus, flanked by two other pirate druids. He tells her that he tells Keyleth that she's done well, but points to the massive storm of ash and cinders that is approaching them. And before I continue this, I really want to point out this is an example of of bullshit dimension doors. Which is not the dimension, which is not the spell itself necessarily, but uh, bullshit dimension doors are what happen when you, as a character or a player or a moviegoer or 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 the character in a movie or whatever, leave somebody behind, go on a long journey, and when you get there, the fucker's there, with with no explanation as to how or why or when. 
<laughs> and and in D and D, there's a little bit of forgiveness there because there's magic involved and there's actual planner shift, and you can do things like that. But it's just it's one of the things that irritates me per- on a very personal level when it's implemented because it's implemented so often as a surprise. Yep. Um, the very kind of twist we were just talking about previously, where uh, in, in video games, oftentimes you will go through in incredible hardship in, in MMOs. It's like a full dungeon or in, 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 in first person shooters, you'll shoot up a fucking complex filled with enemy bad guys. And then when you get to the goal of the complex or the goal of the dungeon, the end of the dungeon or whatever have you motherfucker just walks up like it was no big deal. And 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 what that does, and the reason why it irritates me is because it un, in, in 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 many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, it under it undersells the effort that the main character or the character that we're rooting for, the character that we're portraying, went through to get there. Now there can be reasons for this, you, you know, like like you know if if you if you know for a fact that this is that person's lair and that they're not going to have any problems getting there, that's fine. But when it's random schmuck or, or dude that's sitting here judging us on our test, sending us into a dungeon. And then we complete the dungeon. He comes through the kitty ladder and it's like, Hey, congratulations. You fought really hard to get here. You could have just taken that door would have taken three seconds, but you know what? You took the hard way and congratulations on you. That's (laughs) just irritating to me. Yeah, it's it's also it's also an example of poor writing. You don't have when you don't have an explanation for how that character got there. You're just saying they did. Right. And 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 it's like that's not you that's not satisfying. Yeah, and you want to justify things like that. You're absolutely right. Mm. Hi, Jack's phone. <laughs> now I do want to say you can you don't necessarily as long as it works as long as it works in your mind that sounded bad as long as as long as you have a narrative logic that supports it yes yeah you don't have to you don't have to have have the villain come out and 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 bond bond villain speech and say haha I am here because I have a spell that allows me to do so. Blah 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 blah. You know, so long as so long as, as, long, as, as long as the logic works and it doesn't feel like a cheat, that's the key. If it doesn't feel like a cheat, it's not a cheat, even if it's a cheat, because yeah. we're talking about storytelling. Yeah, like that—that that, that, that is the trick. It, it has to feel right and fine, and in this instance, it feels okay. Like it feels forgivable. Um, I mean, he's a high level. He's a high level druid. I think we can figure out how he did it. It's true. Um, but the, the 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 biggest issue that I have with this particular part is that it's been previously established in this episode that the entrance to the fire plane is the lava vortex. Right, and it's like. It has not been established that you can get into the fire plane in any other way. And while there are other ways to get it, and if you have that meta knowledge of D&D, you understand that. From just a viewer's perspective or a reader's perspective, it's like, oh, here's the one door that takes you there. Motherfucker, how'd you get here? Um, how'd you get here ahead of us? Yep. Like, and that, that, that's where it sort of, that's where it 
like it's fine here because it's D and I get that, and I I understand how they got there. But in any other format, this would not have been okay in my, for me. Um, just because that that you you establish a doorway and then don't use it, and that that is a continuity issue that irritates me on a very personal level. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, anyways, Sarkonis turns into a fire elemental and they fight. <laughs> yep. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything really important that happens in the fight. Not particularly. Um, not really. It's, it's, it's kind a, of a standard sort of, okay, you're here for a trial. We will give you a trial. You can have your friends help you with the trial. Congratulations. You succeeded on the trial. Oh, shit. Now we need to leave. Uh, yeah. The uh, Caleb turns into a water elemental to fight the fire elemental. Um, which is kind of interesting because of things that are explained later. But... um. And, uh, yeah, they, they fight and they win. Um, and as they win, uh, the, the cinder storm that has been brewing behind them falls upon the group. Yep. Uh, which prompts a very, which prompts a very heated and desperate run away from the fire elemental plane. Um, and, and so here's another place where, Here's another place where in the episode it's it undercuts Sirconus's ability to get there ahead of the party. Because Sirconus runs away with them, heading to the same portal that they came in. Um they 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 all they all begin to run uh Kalis uses wind control to try to keep a to try to a wind control spell to try to keep a tunnel uh, uh in this in the storm open and visible so that everybody can run uh and Sirconis turns into an eagle grabs pike and flies towards the door and flies towards the portal with everyone else following him um and and they all exit through the portal and and spew out into the cinder grove once again um, which is like I said, that that that's another aspect of that you know bullshit dimension door thing, where like then you then show the person that got here ahead of you going back the same way you came here. Um. Yep. So yeah, they exit, and uh, Sarkonis tells Keyleth that she has completed this leg of the Aramente, and that now she only has the water Shari left to speak with. And presents her with a spark stone, a rare item from the fire plane uh, that gives basically the powers of an if- of an uh, uh, ifrit uh, to whomsoever crushes the stone between their hands, basically turning them into giving them sort of the some of the powers of a fire uh, a fire plane denizen. Um, the group rests for the night, then ride back to Vasselheim. And when they arrive, Pike finds uh, that the curse uh, on so she had joined them because there was a curse in the temple, and because Ashley was here for only the week. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, the curse that was on the temple has been lifted, and she is goes back is once again needed to go back to the temple of her goddess. She bids everyone a farewell and leaves the group once again. And that's the end of this episode. Yep. Um, so it was a pretty decent episode just up until the end when a lot of things sort of crashed together at once. Um, and it was still fine after that, but, uh, this is probably this. So this 
sort of in uh, uh, is I I typically classify this as the end of the act, like the actual end of the first arc of storytelling. Um, because like like uh, like although I guess from a from a from a sort of a seasonal perspective, this could be like sort of towards the end of the filler content between seasons, air quotes. Um, because I believe the next big story arc starts after next episode, doesn't it? It doesn't start um, next yeah. episode. It starts after next. It starts episode. after next episode. So we're almost to the end of the yeah. This Netflix is filler content. This is technically chapter two because chapter one is is beholder dude. Yeah. Um, and yeah, technic. And this is I don't remember who comes up with these 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 chapter points, but this is essentially the the penultimate episode of chapter two. Because okay. next episode is sort of a little one off, more or less. Um, well, I would say next episode is where the most important story arc actually kicks off because that's when we get to meet Victor. <laughs> you are not I mean, wrong. You are not <laughs> wrong. And we will talk about Victor. I have a lot of things to talk about Victor next time. So okay, well, that's um, fantastic. Then look forward to that. Look forward yep. to Victor, and most importantly, look forward to hearing more critical thinking as we are back from our hiatus that was unintentionally impinged upon us. Um, and we will talk to you all later. Once again, I've been John at Johnny Bates, and we've also had Jack. Jack, who is at Alt F4 Gamers. And Jeremy. Uh, who is at J Thomas 411 Mania. And we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, goodbye. everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>